0: Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Maisha Cherry. Maisha is a Ph.D. candidate in philosophy at the University of Illinois, Chicago, where she's completing a dissertation on race and forgiveness. Later this year, she'll take up a position as assistant professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside. Cherry has written several essays that she's published in academic journals, and she's co-edited a newly published collection on the moral psychology of anger. In addition, she's written pieces for the Los Angeles Times, Salon, and the Huffington Post. She's also the host of a very popular podcast called The Unmute Podcast. Hi, Maisha. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you today? I'm doing well. Doing well. That's great. So thank you for joining me uh, today on Why We Argue. Thank you for having me. Uh, great. I wanted to talk to you about the intersection of your academic research and your work in public philosophy, both of which are substantial. Uh, okay. So maybe we should begin uh, with uh, one side uh, of this uh, conjunction. Uh, maybe we should begin with some of your research on race, anger, and forgiveness. Can you tell us okay. a little bit about your views?
1: Well, um, it's also very interesting how I got interested in the title, I mean, in the in the subject. So... Um, I am very much influenced by what I experience from day to day, whether that's in my interpersonal relationships or things that I read in the newspaper or read online. And I remember a few years ago, there were two instances in which I became interested in forgiveness. And so there was this was the time I don't know if you're a sports fan, but there's a time of Jeremy Lin, a basketball player at that time for the New York Knicks. And ESPN had published an article about him online. But the headline used a racial epithet. Um, People were outraged about it and people were protesting about it. And Stephen A. Smith, who's a sports analyst there, uh, basically in response to people's outrage, to sum it up, he basically asked the audience, um, why can't you learn how to forgive? We need to learn how to forgive in this particular instance. And in some way, when I heard that, I found that to be an odd response to people's outrage, Um, And I got just very interested in what he meant by that. What was his intentions by that? um, And what does it really mean to ask an outraged audience to forgive? At the same time, I was uh, reading online about an individual who sexually assaulted a young lady 10 years prior and he got caught and he was defending himself in court. And I remember he goes to the young lady as his own lawyer and he basically says to her, why can't you just let this go? Right. So those tools. And basically what he meant by that is, why can't you learn how to forgive so that you can move on? And those two instances happen very closely together. And I remember thinking to myself, what do these individuals mean by this? And so as I begin to do research on forgiveness, because the most popular account about forgiveness is on anger, I mean, an account of letting go of one's anger. So by researching forgiveness. I end up researching about anger as well. And so that's how I got very interested in it. And you'll notice that in those two instances, these are, these are third, well, not technically third parties, but this is the offender and the other sense it's a, it's a third party asking a victim, asking outraged individuals, why can't they forgive? And so I'm very much interested, not necessarily in what forgiveness is. And I think that's part of it because I think you have to at least try to give an account of that before you answer other questions. But I'm also very interested in why we are obsessed with forgiveness. Why are we obsessed with victims forgiveness? Um, And so my larger project is trying to make sense of requests for forgiveness, uh, requests about forgiveness. What is the nature of these requests? And are they appropriate? When are they inappropriate? Um, Are they appropriate in a public context, in a private context? Um, does one le- lose one's standing in asking for forgiveness depending on uh, the racial features of that particular wrongdoing? And so that's my that's my overall my overall project to to now answer. What is my view on that? It depends on <laughs> what individual we're referring to, what question we're referring to and in what context we're we referring to now to deal with a racial issue which is the last chapter of my project, I wanna say that no matter what one's intention, because I honestly want to be sympathetic here, I think that when people ask that question, particularly in a context where there's a lot of racial tension and people wanna know if black victims can forgive, whether it's police officers or whether a white supremacist, I think people are invested in this question for good reasons, right? Um, At least some of them are. And so I wanna say that even when one has good intentions with asking that question, um, that because of our racial context in the United States, that question has certain features. Um, and I want to say that given those features, that request can disrespect victims. And so we have we have reasons to refrain from or at least delay asking that particular question. Um, so to, to, to give my account, it will all it always depends on what context we're talking about, uh, what kind of question we're asking the, the particular victim and who are we asking who would do the asking that were basically determine my, my full account.
0: Great. So just a quick, so there is a, um, a going view, particularly with respect to anger. Right. that Um, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, that Martha Nussbaum has recently championed, right? which is the view that anger is always a kind of moral error or never quite, uh, uh, um, morally justified because it's on Nussbaum's view, it's, it's, it's intrinsically tied to a, a kind of, uh, weird cosmic justice or payback retribution kind of view. I take it that you have a view uh, of anger that makes it um, uh, not only morally justified, but appropriate under certain circumstances. Is that true?
1: Yeah. I mean, I want to say that I don't think anger is conceptually about that. Um, I think it can lead to that, um, but I don't think conceptually it's about that. I mean, you think about, you know, objects or subjects that you are angry towards. I mean, you think about your family members um i doubted that every time that you're angry with your family member that you're thinking about how you can get them back at least i hope i mean if we can imagine if that's the case every time someone is enraged or angry or, or at their at their loved ones um if if behind that anger is this conceptual payback then i would i would doubt that you're a good father right i would doubt <laughs> that you're a good partner right internally so i don't think that anger is conceptually about that i'm not going to deny there are senses in which i may get angry um, at someone. And I am thinking about paying the back, but I don't think that that is conceptually about what anger is about. And also, I think it's very important. I mean, we talk about anger as if well, there's no such thing as angry agents or angry subjects um, that has agency in regards to, to, to anger. Um, and so I don't think that anger is conceptually about, about payback, but I also think that uh, sometimes what we do with anger doesn't necessarily mean that anger is conceptually about those things in which we do. Um, to be a little bit more clear, um, I can love you. And out of that loving, I can stalk you and kill you. Do we then say um, that because the agent has therefore with this quote unquote love has done particular actions, that love is conceptually about death or about murder? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Um, but I think we have these examples in our everyday life um, that I think is a counter argument to, to to Martha Nussman's claim. And even I think that the, the claim itself comes from Aristotle mm-hmm. and, you know, you know uh, but aristotle also says that we ought to be angry at the right time towards the right uh, indiv- you know individual uh, to the right degree and and so if 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 it was conceptually about payback i don't think that he was suggested there's a mean or there's a virtue in relationship to anger so i think we need to we need to rethink that
0: great so can you tell us a little bit about what so i think that it was it's very important and i think you're right to say that um you know w- we've got all this language built up around anger that Suggests that it is always something that um, befalls someone. They fall into right. anger. They 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 become enraged rather than it being something that an agent you know does <laughs> right. uh, takes right. on him or herself. Um, and it seems to me that you're right that there are cases where anger is actually the product of. Um, a certain set of reflections and an exercise of one agent, one's agency. Um, so, can can you tell us a bit about what you what what if anger isn't this intrinsic desire for payback and to see some cosmic level of justice done? Um, do you have a view about what anger, um, what anger is?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess what I would say is that I, I I'm a cognit cognitivist in this regard, right? So I, I do honestly believe I I don't want to be a strict cognitivist and suggest that anger is the the judgment um, that something has gone wrong or we have been wronged, but I want to say that it, it it at least involves some type of, of more judgment. I mean, what I mean by that is, um, it's, it's kind of, I think weird for me to say that I'm angry and I don't know particularly what I'm angry at or what I'm angry about, right? Cause I've made a judgment that something has gone wrong. So I'm angry about something, right? So I think that anger is, or involves, um, a moral judgment of sorts. Um, I also want to suggest that usually the case with all emotions, that it, 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 most of the time there are exceptional cases in which this is not the case. That there's some kind of bodily response to that particular, particular anger. Um, but I also think, I mean, one of the things that, that Nusman says in the book is she says that what, what we're trying to do is kind of the, the, kind of the status. We're trying to uh, bring the offender down low, right? Bring their status down low because based on our injury that they have done the same for us. But I believe that, particularly anger and justice, what we're trying to do is not to bring the offender down low, but to bring the offender down to uh, to the level of ourselves, right? Um, and so, what I mean by that, we remind the offender that they are not that we are not beneath them, but they all also are also not above reproach, right? So then, in our anger, we hold them accountable, uh, we blame them, and we remind them that they have done some type of wrongdoing, um, and so we hold them accountable through that particular anger. So I don't I don't think it involves bringing them down low. Um, I think it involves bringing them down lower to where they were as a result of the wrongdoing. I mean, there's there's work uh, that suggests uh, people have said that when one gets you know, when one commits a wrongdoing, it's it's simply suggesting that that y- you don't matter. I do. Right. right? And what anger says, is says that we all matter in this regard. And I want to remind you of that. And so I don't think that. Uh, anger involves that kind of that that status bringing that status down beneath us, but I think it involves bringing the offender down to the level of ourselves.
0: Yeah, blame. Fantastic. So d- now let me ask, sort of a, a little bit about forgiveness. Is right. Um, so is is so you're right that uh, a lot of accounts of forgiveness have this um, uh, this uh, the, claim that forgiveness is a kind of letting go of anger. Um, mm-hmm. d- do you think that that's what forgiveness is? I mean, I can, I it, doesn't, it seems to me a strange. I, it seems it's a it's it's a popular view among philosophers that right. forgiveness in, intrinsically involves that. It strikes me as a strange, strange coupling.
1: It is strange, right? So, so I want to answer the question in two parts. So, one of the things that I'm trying to address in my larger project is why I would what account makes sense in explaining why anyone would be interested in asking for your forgiveness, and I want to say that the accounts, the most popular accounts. Uh, doesn't sufficiently answer that question for me. So I want to introduce a different account and a different account will make sense of the other accounts, right? So I adopt an account um, articulated by Alice McLachlan, um, her multi-dimensional view account, which I call uh, the practice-based account, right? And on that view, it simply suggests that that forgiveness is a moral practice or practices um, and it aims for three things, right? Either it aims for repair, uh, for the relationship between the two or for the community, Aims for relief for the victim or release for the offender. Um, And those more practices can consist of a a variety of things. And it it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the case for every instance of forgiveness. So it may just be the case uh, that in forgiving you, Robert, I do moderate my anger, right? Or it could be the case that next week when I forgive you, I do let go of my anger. But it could also be the case that when you wrong me, I'm not angry. So the question is, what do I let go of? (laughs) If I'm not angry, right, what do I let go in that sense to make sense of forgiveness? It could be the case that I refuse not to to take any revenge. It could be the case that I just decide to start a new relationship with you, right? It could be the case that I let go of the hatred that I have. It could be the case that I look at you differently. Um, It could be the case that we just shake on it, right, and decide to go forth, right? Um, So I want to say that the more practices are not uniform. And so I don't believe in this concept of genuine forgiveness, is that there's just one account this ideal version, um, that if, if forgiveness doesn't look like this, that it's not forgiveness at all. Um, I want to say that it can be a set of moral practices um, and it has these these particular aims. And I think given this particular account, it makes sense why people will be invested. I mean, if forgiveness was just a letting go of anger, uh, I mean, there are some people who care about you being angry a, about them, but what if people really don't care? I mean, what is the, what is the point of not being angry at me? There has to be a point about that in some regard. So I think that people are interested in the moral practices of regard of, of it. I don't think people want you to forget what happened. But I think it, it the action is aiming at something. Um, but I also don't want to, rest- want to restrict it just to anger or restrict it just to hatred or restrict it just to looking at someone differently. I think it can
0: look different in different instances. And so, great. So that all sounds to me right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, the, the the kind of plea that, um, uh, that that you said got you into this series of topics. The uh, can't you set this aside? <laughs> um uh, right. particularly in in the, the cases that involve uh reference to uh setting aside uh wrongdoing that has a racial dimension or injustice that has a racial racial dimension um so do you think that there's something there's something uniquely at work in those kinds of cases <sighs>
1: I'm hesitating because it's just, I want to say so much, but we have yeah, so little yeah, time. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, So I can, no, no, here's the thing. I can take, I can take the generous view and then I can take the not so generous view, right? And I want to say that even the generous view, I mean, listen, we're individuals, uh, political agents that live in a, a social context that since we were born, we were born in a kind of racialized society. And as much as we try to act post-racial or colorblind, uh, we are recipients of the stereotypes and uh, the information that we receive throughout our lives about different racial groups, and so even good old liberals, even people who are allies or active bystanders in the movement, um, even people who are certain. Uh, gender or race, have these kind of background things that are informing us and the way that we relate to each other. So I want to say that at the end of the day, intentions don't matter. Even though we may have good intentions, I want to say that we can make mistakes and we can have certain expectations of others that we don't have for other groups, right? So I honestly think, I mean, it's strange, right? That in those instances, and in the cases that I'm quite interested in, like I said before, I'm I'm, I'm very inspired by what I see in everyday life. So I was really inspired by these uh, press conferences, Um, After these high profile cases of police brutality and and police violence against black bodies, that at these press conferences, reporters were asked the members of the family um, these questions. Can you find it in your heart to forgive? If such and such was to make an apology, would you forgive them? Since such and such has apologized. So you see yourself forgiving them. And I was quite interested in why in these instances were forgiveness being brought up. What I noticed is that it's quite asymmetrical. When we see instances in which uh, black individuals are the perpetrators and white individuals are victims, we never see this forgiveness conversation, right? And it's interesting that why is forgiveness such an important question to ask in these instances? Why is forgiveness an interesting question to ask of black victims of white violence? And so I wanted to interrogate that. Now, I think the answers is, 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 there's a variety of, of reasons for why that may be the case. Um, for one, I think, um, (laughs) that we have, we have moral expectations of blacks that we don't necessarily have of whites. And I think, uh, one of the sad things about this country is that we have not reconciled ourselves to our racial past. Mm -hmm. And so because we have reconciled ourselves to our racial past, which can come about through apologies that can come about by acknowledging past wrongdoings that can come about as a result of reparations, because um, our our institutions have not done their part. The only person that we hold to be responsible in some regard is that we want black people to do their part. Um, And that's pretty asymmetrical kind of responsibility. Um, But I think we only have the expectations of blacks because we wanna escape the expectations that we have of of white institutions. Um, And I think that's that's unfortunate. Another thing has to do with what I think is racial stereotypes in some regard. I mean, as as much as we may look at black individuals as as criminals, as, as dangers, and I think that's a dehumanizing activity, we also have a sense of looking at black individuals as saints, as people who can take pain, as people who can move on. And I think the history of this country has shown that black people have always been forgiving. Um, and so this is another situation in which Black people are the victims. Can you forgive us once again? Now, what's behind that is also very much problematic because once again, it's putting uh, the the task or the responsibility of Black folks to continue uh, the work of reparations solo, right? Without whites holding up their part. I also think, I mean, as much as we're holding up them as saints, as individuals who have the capacity to forgive, I also think in some sense, um, we have this kind of dehumanizing aspect where we think that no matter what happens to blacks, um, that they can indeed get over it in some way uh, they can get over. It. And I think that's quite dehumanizing. Um, so I think there's a lot of, of, of work going on there. I mean, not only dealing with race, but also gender and these high profile cases that I'm interested. A lot of these individuals are mothers, um, but also a lot of it has to do with religion. A lot of them are Christian. So there are appeals to the Christianity gender also has a has a role to do with it, um, but I also think race also has a role to do with it. So there's a lot of things that are influencing these particular questions. Uh, I suggest that instead of what I what I think these 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 questions do, I think not only does it uh, not allow us to share in responsibility, um, I think it puts all the burden on the victim and the victim's family to do the work of repair um, that we all need to do as a, as a particular community. But even if a person is not conscious that this is all that's happening and all this, this is some unconscious stuff that's informing these particular questions, I, I think what's probably at, also at the heart of it is that a person knows what's at stake, right? When we have these racial cases, we are concerned about what's gonna happen, right? We may be concerned about riots. We may be concerned that this is the one thing that allows us uh, to allow things to go crazy. Right. So we want things to settle down in some sense. But I want to suggest that we can we can perhaps do that without asking the forgiveness question. I think there are other questions that we can ask and which we can probably achieve reconciliatory aims or reparative aims without having to put all that work on the on the victim through Asking the question of forgiveness. Um, and I, mean, I think one of the questions that we could do is is ask the victim not what they can do for us, <laughs> right. but what we can do for them. Right. right. You know, one of the things I one of the questions I never heard of these press conferences, what can we do to make sure that this never happens again? Right. right? One of the things we don't hear at these press conferences is that reporters have the power to write the story. Right, they're, they're going to carry the narrative. And so can you imagine the power that would have been conveyed if a reporter was to ask uh, the victim's parents, um, wh- what do you think I should write tomorrow? that may encourage a police officer while reading the newspaper to look at a black body differently. So I think there are things that we can do that can achieve the same aims without bringing up a forgiveness question, which I think overburdens victims and allow us not to take responsibility, not just for white racism, but for our role um, and doing the work of repair for us all.
0: Well, that sounds Spot on uh, to me, um, you set, certainly sound like you're ready for your defense so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's, so that's excellent. So um, let me move on it's, so you put a lot of time into uh, thinking through the uh, the academic philosophical questions that you're interested in, which are as we were just expressing, not um, anemically or strictly academic they they're they're public moral questions and political questions. But um, you also write uh, for popular outlets. And as I mentioned, uh, you host a fabulous podcast called The Unmute Podcast, which um, describes uh, which you describe or describes itself as in part devoted to um, giving space for philosophical discussion to topics that are not often discussed. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the podcast and um, uh, your vision, uh, uh, your vision of it? Yeah,
1: originally, I mean, a few years ago, I, I did a summer institute for formerly incarcerated individuals, and we had about 13 participants who had never taken a philosophy class proper. Uh, some of them was just had a high school a diploma. Some of them didn't pass their GED. And some of them was in their first or second year of college. Uh, but I felt that these were perfect people to have philosophical questions with. I mean, one of the reasons is because I had worked with them Uh, this particular population for a year and a half. And so I had ongoing philosophical questions with them, Um, but I wanted to bring them into a college campus, have them being taught by young uh, philosophers of color, allowing them to see that philosophical thought is not just restricted uh, to white folks who are dead, but this is something that they have been engaging in that they can continue to engage in. Once the program was over, I thought to myself, what could I create that would keep these young folk engaged? And I was like, huh. What if I create a podcast or radio show that will appeal to these people, right? That if, if, if I was to send them an email and say, hey, it's been a long time since we had contact. Uh, what books have you been reading? Here's some work that I can put you on to. I know some people who's doing some great work. Listen to this episode. Listen to this episode. Right. So they were my target audience. These 13 individuals, my target audience. I wanted to create something cool enough, something enticing enough, having topics that was interesting enough to that particular population. Right. So if no one else listened to it, as long as I got an email or a text message where they said, "Maisha, I listened to that episode about language and police. I think she was spot like that was enough for me. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was the impetus for it. But also, I think it's aligned uh, with my upbringing. I mean, I was I was raised in a religious background. Black church is my my experience. And one of the things that I learned in a black church is that the minister goes to school, gets their theology or their their Ph.D., Um, And they do it not to write articles, but they do it to to go back into the community and to teach on Sundays and to teach Sunday school on uh, on Sunday mornings and to do Bible study on Tuesday. Basically, they learn in order to go back and teach lay folk. And so that was just part of my tradition. I also come from an activist um, tradition in which it's all about being with common folk. And so it's just what I was. My mother just raised me um, to be a a person of the people in some regard. Um, So a part of me is also the podcast and the public work that I do is just the way that I I was raised. I don't feel comfortable simply doing academic work. Um, I want to engage with 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 regular folk. And I'm not just talking about regular folk in regards to people who have never gone to college, Uh, but I'm talking about also other academics who have no idea what people in philosophy are talking about. Um, and so that's just what I've been called to do, to have conversations um, no matter what level or what space someone is someone is in. And I also think that some of the most brilliant people don't have Ph.D.s. Right. Uh, they are in the communities in which I was raised. Um, so that's just I guess you could say that's just my vocation in, in a way. Um, and it was also the motivation to write op eds and all that other stuff. A lot of things that I'm interested in oftentimes sometimes begin as an op ed and it develops into an actual article. And so I think my 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 work. In some way, you know, I I don't want to say that I have a foot, you know, in one discipline, the other foot is in the other. I just look at myself as an academic who's been called to public spaces, um, who in addition has been called to public spaces. And and I just hope that uh, my work is able to do that. But, you know, I also think that um, I don't look at them as two different kinds of things. I think the work that I'm doing publicly Uh, is also, uh, there's seeds of that when I do academic work. And so the way in which I give my talks, I try not to be extra technical. Um, I try to be as accessible as possible. I try to use everyday examples. So if you were to come into my talk and you were not a philosopher, I hope that you were able to follow my argument. I just think, I just believe in accessibility. I think that knowledge is not restricted to certain individuals. Um, I think we should share in conversation and that's just the spirit and the ethic that I live and move around.
0: Great. So can you, the title of the podcast, though, the name right. of the podcast, Unmute, can you tell me about the, the name?
1: <laughs> well, well, there's a, I think there's a lot of conversations, philosophical conversations going around um, in our discipline. Um, I think only certain conversations get heard. Um, I think only certain conversations are considered philosophical conversations. And so when you think about journals that are published quarterly, um, only certain people are able to speak in those, those, those conversations. I'm not saying that they're, they are exclusive in a sense. I mean, the the acceptance rate kind of shows that in a way. And so you ask what, what, what's happening to all these other conversations that are not mentioned in those journals, uh, that are also don't get a chance to view in the New York times. Uh, what happened to those conversations of people who are teaching at community college, uh, but have good ideas, right. Of Conversations that are going on. Um, that doesn't have a canon behind it. Right. Mm-hmm. But people are engaging in these empathy conversations philosophically. So I want us to unmute those. I want I want to give a voice or a, a microphone to those kind of conversations. I find them interesting. I don't find them less philosophical than the, than the conversations that are re- mentioned in journals such as ethics um, or a noose. I, I think that um, I'm not an elitist in that sort. I think there's a lot of interesting things being thought about. Um, and and I'm interested in shedding a light and providing a microphone to to those, to that content. Um, I'm inspired by those conversations, and I just want the world to, to hear them.
0: Well, it is a it's a real fabulous podcast. Um, I, Thank you. I, I, I I listen. Um, I don't want to say religiously, but I. I <laughs> 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 but I, I I listen regularly. Um, so maisha, you've been very, very generous with your with your time, and so uh, I just wanted to sort of uh, ask one one further question, final question. So with the podcast and with your your work uh, on a, a a topic of of sort of public public ethics and and um, uh, sort of political philosophy, um, do you have a view about the public responsibilities of philosophers or maybe academics in general?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mentioned earlier accessibility, right? I'm not going to say that everyone is going to have the same vocation or even look at their academic career as a vocation, right? So I'm not going to say that everyone has a responsibility uh, to do public philosophy. I am not going to say that. Um, I, but I also think, I think that what we do have responsibility uh, to ask scholars that, that are participating in knowledge production of some sort, um, that we just make our work accessible. Right. And I know that sounds ish, but even I I honestly think that when I go to APA meetings and I I go into sessions that sound interesting, um, that I may not that that's not my subfield. But I go in because I think it sounds interesting when I go and hear these talks. It's a shame that I don't understand what the hell they are talking about. I think that's (laughs) unfortunate. Right. That 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 we don't understand each other. That's unfortunate. Like that's that's a dilemma. That's a problem. Right. And a lot of that has to do in some ways with a culture. Another ways has to do with the standards that we have set. Um, unfortunately, in grad school, we don't we don't we don't learn how to how to how to speak in, in, in very clear ways in some regard. I think sometimes uh, the more convoluted we sound, the more we get rewarded. Right. I, I, I honestly think that our greatest challenge, our greatest responsibility is to create work that we're passionate about, but make it accessible. Right. Make it clear. Um I think that's the I think that's at least that we can. do. I think that is our responsibility. I think people are doing great work and not just social and, and political philosophers. I think people are doing good work in logic. I think people are doing great work in philosophy of science. I want to be able to read and understand that good work. And I know I'm not going to say that the, the, and I don't have to pay anything to enter into that world. Right. I think mm-hmm. there there are some things that I may have to get myself familiar with. Uh, but I've I've uh, my grad school education has prepared me for that. And I still fail when I go to APA meetings. So I just want to challenge the culture. I want to challenge individuals. Individuals is in charge of the culture uh, that that we ought to be, try to try to be accessible. I think the time of, of thinking that. To, to be perceived as intelligent, one can't understand what we're talking about. I think that's that's beginning to prove itself to be obsolete, uh, that I think if we're, if we're scholars, if we're, we're knowledge producers, uh, we should be encouraged or at least have the desire for allow, allow other people to understand us. And I think that should be the challenge and a responsibility for us all.
0: Well, that sounds, again, right on to me. So, Maisha, um, thank you so much uh, uh, for joining me today on uh, the Why We Argue podcast. Thank you, Robert. I enjoy our conversation. Yeah. um, And thank you, listener, for tuning into the podcast, uh, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation. Uh, You can follow the project on both Twitter and Facebook at Public Humility. That's at one word, Public Humility. Bye for now.